Hello, folks. Welcome to another episode of On My Mind. I'm Shelley Griffith, and I'm delighted to welcome a longtime friend and medical colleague, Dr. Robin Bledsoe, to the program. He is an obstetrician-gynecologist, and Robin, welcome. Thank you for having me. We're glad you could be with us today, and we're going to talk about a lot of interesting things with regard to women's health. And if you'll share first, like I do with most of the guests, tell us some about your background, where you were raised, and and uh, so forth. Okay. I was uh, born in Memphis, but a month after I left Memphis, or my family left Memphis, we moved to Greenville, Mississippi, which is in the Delta. And I grew up there after graduating high school. I went to Ole Miss undergrad. I had um, wanted to go to medical school for quite a while. I had opportunity to work in a local hospital as an orderly and even a scrub tech. Uh, took call on the weekends, something you definitely cannot do anymore. <laughs> but uh, it lit a fire under me wanting to go to medical school. Um, so I did blessed to do well at Ole Miss, and then even more blessed, got accepted to Duke Medical School. Um, which was great for two reasons. One, fantastic education, and two, that's when Coach K came to <laughs> be the basketball coach, so we, <laughs> my whole family became rabid basketball fans. And then I was blessed to uh, do OBGYN residency at Vanderbilt there in Nashville, where I got really great training in OBGYN. My dad, I'm actually a third-generation doctor. My uh, grandfather was um, a practitioner in the Mississippi Delta, and he actually died during a flu epidemic when he was going out treating patients for the flu. Mm. Uh, my father, after World War II, came home and was fortunate enough to get with the GI Bill to get to go to college and got into medical school, where he actually met my mother because she was a teacher in the medical school. Daddy went into OBGYN, and I thought I might like that because he seemed to enjoy it very much. I was really lucky when I did my clerkships and at Duke that OB was last, went through <laughs> all the other ones first. So when I got to OB, Shelly was, was like eating ice cream. It just seemed to come very natural to me. I like it because it's such a variety of things. You have general health, you have the obstetrics, you get to do surgery. And there's way more psychiatry involved with it than I ever dreamed there would be. And it's just been a very fulfilling career. Well, and for our listeners, I was doing OB, didn't do it that long, not nearly as long as, as you have, Robin. But Robin came, I think, I guess it was the year that I quit OB, if yeah, I'm not mistaken. I think it was 86, yeah. And from that point uh, forward, he has had an excellent career all these years with OB and with GYN. And and share with us, if you will, Rob, some of the uh, things that folks and, and perhaps certainly many of our listeners would know, but they may not, how you approach, let's start first with the obstetric patients, uh, what you advise as far as uh, exam times, intervals, when you like to see patients. And I know Robin's going to tell you he's now uh, retired out of the OB, but Share with us, if you will, the standard routine for obstetrical care. Sure. We generally recommend that patients come in reasonably early. Uh, we'll try to see them in the first 12 weeks or so. 
that way we can primarily educate them. And the very important thing is to establish their due date as early as possible. When you and I started in this business, ultrasound wasn't nearly as prominent or as important and the technology wasn't, but that has gotten to be so accurate at dating a pregnancy that oftentimes we find out that when the woman either remembers or doesn't remember her last menstrual period, ultrasound clarifies that within two or three days if we get them in early. There's now a vaginal ultrasound that you didn't have, but came on just about the time I was a chief resident, and it's really changed everything because we can make so many decisions later on. Is this patient premature? Is it time we can deliver the baby if she's sick? Those sorts of things. Decisions that can be made with more confidence later on in the pregnancy. And primarily, once we establish the dates, then it's education. It's so important, educating patients. There's talk about what medicines they should or shouldn't take. Um, something that has really blossomed recently is the availability of early uh, non-invasive prenatal testing where you can draw blood from the mother and find out a lot of things about the fetus. Do they have congenital diseases? Do they have a higher risk of Down syndrome? Things like that. Uh, some people want to know those things. Some people don't want to know those things. And so we offer, we don't push. I think in some practices, they actually push them to do those sorts of things. But the bottom line is, you know, are you going to act on the result? If you're not going to terminate the pregnancy, why get the result? Mm. Uh, quite honestly, in our part of the country, there's not a whole lot of people that want to terminate their pregnancy for these type of things. But in other regions, I'm aware of, there's a whole lot of it. Um, the recent change with the uh, cancellation of Roe v. Wade and the law here in Tennessee, which is re severely restricted abortion, makes that decision a little bit more difficult for patients if they choose to go that route because they have to go somewhere else. Mm. Um, but I stress to the patients or have when I was doing OB and I think my partners still do, we are educating you about the availability of this testing. We are not pushing you to do the testing. We don't make any money off you doing the testing. Mm -hmm. And then after that, we see them about once a month, um, for the first couple of trimesters, first two thirds of the pregnancy. As we get closer to the end, we see them more often because that's when we start seeing more medical problems might arise. In the middle of pregnancy, we test them for gestational diabetes. If they have diabetes just while they're pregnant, we can treat that, keep the babies from getting too much fat, getting too big, keep the mom healthy. We also begin to monitor their blood pressure the other thing about coming in early is a lot of people have medical conditions when they get pregnant. They're already on blood pressure medicine or seizure medicine or something. And sometimes we have to change those medicines to be safe with the baby so it doesn't cause birth defects. Uh, sometimes we modify various things uh, to keep the mom and the baby healthy because that's really, in the end, what we want is a healthy baby. We're very blessed here in Athens that if we have a high-risk problem, that we might be able to take care of, but the pediatricians don't have an intensive care nursery here. We have very good referral to high-risk pregnancy specialists in Knoxville and Chattanooga, just 45 minutes away. We have a great relationship with them. My partners still do. You know, it's a matter of making a phone call and saying, I have this complication. I need to refer this patient to you. Sometimes we jointly manage them. 
sometimes they need to deliver, say, at UT or Erlanger at the high-risk centers, um, especially if there's this potential for problems like heart defects of the baby, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. We do scan everybody around 18 to 19 weeks now as well because then you can really tell a lot of anatomy. You can see a lot of defects, identify them early, and the added bonus is most people want to find the sex of the baby. Mm -hmm. If they haven't already found that with the prenatal testing, you almost always can tell them if it's a boy or a girl. But yeah. the, uh, that's a lot of fun to see them light up when you tell them. And no matter whether it's a boy or a girl, they still go, oh, great. <laughs> you know, so um, yes. the other thing is they want put to put it in an envelope so they can have a reveal party later. Exactly. I've gotten to where yeah. I tell them, you must promise me you will not blow anything up <laughs> because not so long ago, the woman who posted the first one of these reveal parties, YouTube or whatever it was, she said she wished she'd never done it because some people have actually died because they blow up things and, you know, oh, and, and shrapnel oh, wounds and things. Oh. People have actually been killed doing it. And it's, it's wow. really rather silly. Oh, my. That I still do ultrasounds to help my partners because I have a lot of experience with it. And it's really a lot of fun still to show them the sex of the baby and see them. Well, and as you know, when I was doing it, we didn't do that. We always kind of just played games of guessing and, and, you know, talking about it later. But you're absolutely right. And the reveal parties, wow, I didn't know they got that bad. But, yeah, that's something else. Rob, take us through, I guess, one of the things that, that certainly you've seen over many years, the blood pressure issues in pregnancy, so-called preeclampsia, eclampsia. Do do you have a percentage of your folks that have had that through your career? Is I'm sure any? there is. Yeah. I, I don't can't tell you it's not a high amount, but it's probably ten percent, fifteen. I guess that we you know we're monitoring very carefully. Most people don't become severely uh, preeclamptic. Eclampsia is a seizure associated with pregnancy, and if the pregnant woman gets blood pressure gets too high, then she's at risk of stroke. She's at risk of a seizure, and she's at risk of uh, prematurely delivering. The placenta can separate prematurely, and the baby can be dead before they get to the hospital. That's why we monitor this so very closely. Sometimes we have to deliver the babies early because the risk is greater leaving the baby in than taking the baby out. Fortunately, almost everyone recovers from it without any uh, long-term consequences. It seems to be, you know, after all these years, we still don't know exactly what the factor is, mm. but it's clearly related to the placenta. Okay. Um, because once you deliver the placenta, they clear out within 12 to 24 hours, 48 hours, mm. they clear out whatever even their blood pressure comes back down and they're mm. fine. Um, it can impact on their kidney function for a few hours. Uh, it's probably the scariest thing for the obstetrician is to see this blood pressure go really, really high. We pretty much know that if we can get them beyond the stroke or the seizure, they're going to be fine. Yeah. Uh, but it, it's, it's something we take very, very seriously. And that's why near the end of pregnancy, we start seeing patients every week to make sure that blood pressure is not going up too high. Rob, with C-sections, and of course, I'm sure a number of our listeners that are, that are here today have had that or their their families have. Uh, 
share with us perhaps uh, the more common reasons for a C-section. Okay. Well, interestingly enough, right now, the most common reason for a C-section is because they had a C-section before. So you're talking about repeat C-section, but primary C-section, meaning you've never had one before and something comes along. Probably the most common reason is what we call failure to progress the patients in labor and they get just so far dilated or they may get fully dilated, but the baby's too big to come out of the pelvis. And it's not so much about how big the baby is, it's how big is the baby relative to the mom's bony pelvis. If it can't come through the bones, it can't come out. Uh, oftentimes, it's, uh, what we call a malpresentation, it may be baby is breached butt first or maybe sideways, clearly can't come out that way. Um, sometimes it's what we call fetal distress, Maybe the baby's pushing, maybe she's complete, she's doing fine, everything's progressing along, and all of a sudden the heartbeat drops down and stays down and stays down. And you got about 10 to 12 minutes, or you're going to be in trouble. And fortunately, our C section crew jumps quickly and we get the babies out almost always without it being a long term thing. But um, babies are pretty resilient. But um, you got to get the baby out so we can get some oxygen if the cord and oftentimes that's because the cord is around the neck as she pushes it becomes tight cord around the neck is a very common thing it's a fourth of babies if i recall have a cord around the neck somewhere in that neighborhood mm -hmm. and usually it's not an issue it's loose and they slide right through it but if it gets tight it's like a noose uh, but like i said we so many c-sections are done now that Repeat C-section is actually the number one cause. Once a C-section, <laughs> they either always do or choose to. Um, several couple of decades ago, there was a big push to try and start having vaginal deliveries after cesarean because a lot of people can. I mean, if they had a breach or they had a fetal distress, it wasn't because the baby couldn't come out. Mm -hmm. So we would watch them carefully. Be prepared to do a C-section on them if they something happened, but a lot of them, 70% of them, 75% could deliver vaginally after a cesarean. But then uh, studies began to show that maybe it wasn't such a great idea in our small hospital because we don't have anesthesia available 24 hours a day in the hospital and an operating crew in the hospital. We had to do away with vaginal birth after cesarean, but in bigger places like other hospitals, like in bigger cities where they have full-time anesthesia 24 hours a day, right on site and have an OR crew that can jump in five minutes and get a baby out, mm -hmm. they still do. And we still promote vaginal birth in, mm -hmm. in our profession. I, we did a lot of it and we were very successful. Unfortunately, we never had a catastrophe. And I feel that's a blessing. That's not bragging. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. That's why the cesarean section rate is so high now, because it repeats. Let me ask you this, Rob, uh, and, and people understand. Uh, certainly, and you and I both did in the careers, we would do maybe on a repeat C-section or something, we would do tubal ligations if the patient desired that. Are we seeing, I guess, more tubal Surgeries done or vasectomies? Any any tendency to that? Do we know as far as sterilization procedures? I can't tell it's any different than it before. I don't really know the data on vasectomies, but mm -hmm. 
when I counsel patients about a tooth and before we do one, uh, I ask, have you talked to your husband about having it? Mm. Oh, he's chicken. He won't do it. <laughs> you know, we chuckle about it. Um, yeah. But it's also a personal decision because when yeah. someone is going to have sterilization, they need to strongly consider, what if I'm not with this man? What if he dies? What if we have a divorce? Would I ever want to be pregnant again? So as a couple, you need to consider it, but you also need to be a little bit selfish. And that's not a bad word. You need to think about yourself. What if my child died? What if my husband died? And I, I spend a good deal of time counseling people about that because sometimes they change their mind. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my wife and I had to discuss that after our three kids. It's a permanent decision. People, people are aware that sometimes they can be reversed. But now, a new trend that's occurred over the last probably 10 years, we found out that most common type of ovarian cancer actually starts in the fallopian tube Mm. and so that we now recommend taking the whole tube out so they never have fallopian tube cancer Mm -hmm. well you can't put a tube back in you might reverse a tube you know if you had taken out a segment you can go back reasonably successful but if you take the tubes out the only chance of getting pregnant then is through in vitro fertilization Mm -hmm. which is quite expensive and doesn't covered by insurance exactly that's a great point, too. I think the counseling, as you point out, is so critical because people do change their minds with that. And, and that leads back to that first comment when you look at, at uh, psychiatric, psychological counseling. Uh, the OBGYN does a ton of that throughout his or her career. Um, and, and that leads me in, are we seeing more women enter OBGYN profession, the profession. Absolutely. Absolutely. When I was at Vanderbilt, they made a point of trying to have about as many men as they do women in the residency mm-hmm. each year. Uh, it's far more women now. In mm-hmm. fact, um, we see more and more research being done by the women in the medical centers, um, in the, typically in our journals. We'll see pictures of the authors. Mm-hmm. And it's so many women now who okay. are cranking out some of this good data, too. Mm-hmm. But it's a much higher percentage of women now doing OBGYN than it was before. Okay. I was thinking that. And and probably when I was going through med school prior to you, I just remember we had 125 in my class at UT Memphis, 11 women. Only one woman graduated. They did not care at all about any of us graduating, which was an odd type of thing and we went through in three years and three months don't ask me why they had that schedule that changed finally but they really to me discriminated against women being in medicine in general which is very sad now remember that's back in the in the 60s but still that is interesting as the women progress and when i got out of medical school the only specialties uh, in training were pediatrics expected uh, very rare OBGYN, no surgical subspecialties, orthopedics and stuff. The women just weren't taken in. And so that has been a dramatic change I've seen, but I didn't exactly know where we were 
in OBGYN percentage-wise, and I think that's very interesting. Yeah, there are more and more women who are now chairman of departments, yeah. chairman of divisions within the departments. I mean, out of necessity because they're somebody has to do it, and yeah. there's more women going into it than men. Thank goodness they they're wanting to, but not just in academics; it's also in private practices. Yeah, more. exactly. Take us through, Robbie, if you will. Uh, <coughs> we're going to shift from OB, folks. A a routine GYN exam that you would recommend to your patients, uh, intervals between the exams, uh, the things that most of us knew with pap smears, breast exams, etc. Take us through that when you recommend to a patient what you'd like for her to consider for that so-called annual okay. exam. Part of that depends on their age. Um, I, I kind of break it into three segments. One is, you know, young people, especially teenagers, who are um, starting to be sexually active. We want them to not get pregnant until they're ready, and we want them to not get diseases. So we spend a good bit of time counseling them. Um, if sometimes a teenager will come in needing to be on birth control of some kind, we counsel them about what is available. If they're very healthy, we oftentimes will not even examine them first. We'll put them on pills or depot shot or something, you know, whatever options they choose, because we have a lot of options now, and then see them back and see, how are you doing? We, in other words, I, I like for them to come in and see that I don't have horns and a tail. We sit down <laughs> in my office with, you know, with our clothes on. We talk. We get to yeah. know each other a little bit yeah. they, because I, I'm a big, intimidating guy with deep, gravelly voice, and <laughs> I want them to see that I'm not a, a bully or anything if they come back next year certainly if any had any problems. The recommendation has really changed about uh, pap smears. I'm not real happy about it, quite honestly. Used to, it was, you start pap smears when they become sexually active. If they don't become sexually active by 18, you start doing a pap smear. And then after that, it's annual pap smear. Well, now the powers that be, the people that collect data, some of them are recommending not doing a pap smear less than 24 years old. And I, I recall being at a meeting in Atlanta back in the early 80, I mean, early 90s when uh, a recommendation was made by a pathologist who was a very well-respected man in our profession, does a lot of uh, epidemiologic research, and he said, we are going to recommend that you not do pap smears on teenagers anymore because only two out of a thousand will get invasive cervical cancer. Now, there were about 150 gynecologists in that room and who all gasped. <laughs> and he's saying only two out of a thousand. And my feeling was, you mean to tell me two out of a thousand will get cervical cancer? Well, he's not going to be sitting across the desk from a mom and a daughter, me telling her, your daughter's never going to have a baby and she might die. And so I, and most gynecologists did not buy into that. Mm -hmm. Since that time, we have learned so much more about the cause of abnormal pap smears and pre-cancer, which is actually the human papillomavirus, that the, the recommendation is sort of in a state of flux. Not all the major organizations agree, but we're doing fewer pap smears, but testing more for the virus. If you don't have the virus, you're not going to have a bad pap. You're not going to have a precancer. And that makes logical sense. Mm -hmm. But the, the recommendations are so complicated now. Do, the, do that on this base, this, 
that it, it's a little bit too much. You then get into middle age, you know, uh, pregnancy age on up into middle age, people that are still menstruating, that's the big lie. You know, they're not menopausal yet. As a general rule, we see them every year. We want to check their breast, make sure there's not anything going, and make sure they're checking their breast, and make sure they're getting their mammograms starting at 40 or earlier if they have a strong family history of breast cancer. Because the, uh, God bless the breast surgeons and the oncologists. If you catch it, they can now cure breast cancer. If you catch it stage one, you got over a 90% chance you're going to live a long time and die of something else. Uh, it's a 90% cure rate if it's stage one, and that has to be picked up before you can even feel it. Mm -hmm. um, and we want to make sure, start doing pelvic exams to make sure they're not growing ovarian masses because there's really not a good screen for ovarian cancer. They get a certain age, around 35. I typically want to check their rectum and make sure they're not getting any kind of tumors, check for blood. Um, and then as they uh, get older, around age 50, traditionally, it's been recommended that we have them get a colonoscopy. Mm -hmm. And if they're not coming in, they don't know that. Mm -hmm. So we want to get them a colonoscopy to make sure that they don't have colon polyps and or cancer. A new really nice thing is this new Cologuard test that's come out, which actually doesn't test for blood. It tests for abnormal DNA in the, on the, in the cells of the stool, which helps determine are they at an increased risk of polyps or cancer. If that comes back positive, then they have the colonoscopy. Recently, the American Cancer Society and the U.S. Preventive Task Force, which are two big influential organizations in America, they're recommending to start screening everybody at 45 now mm -hmm. instead of 50 because we're seeing more colon cancers in younger people. Mm -hmm. And again, with any cancer, if you catch it early, you've got a better chance of cure. And we just want to be available for people. It's amazing how many people come in for their yearly exam and, and oh, by the way, can I ask you about this problem too? Mm -hmm. They're, don't, they're yeah. save them up. Yep, that's right. And, and so... <laughs> We do want to address problems. Um, once they hit menopause, there's a whole different kettle of fish. Are they having vaginal dryness, hot flashes, night sweats? And then you talk about hormone therapy. Um, and you continue to screen because as you age, your risk of colon cancer goes up. Your risk of breast cancer goes up. We stress to them, if you ever have any bleeding, you need to get in here and make sure you don't have uterine cancer. Because again, if we catch it early, then you have a higher rate of cure. The one good thing about uterine cancer is you get an early warning sign with some bleeding mm -hmm. and in menopause. And usually um, a whole lot of my patients that we send to the oncologist for that, all they need is a hysterectomy. They don't need chemo or radiation because they've been caught early because that, that bleeding signal, I need to go to the doctor and get this checked. Great point there, Rob, the early thing. In menopause, and I would get them, and you certainly have had them. The confusions over, okay, I'm starting to get hot flashes. I'm only 40 years old. Uh, take us through your approach to that lady that comes in, irregular bleeding, hot flashes, uh, no periods. And, and they talk, obviously, the women talk amongst themselves, always have. They look at what mom went through. Take us through that evaluation for the menopause or premenopausal years, mm -hmm. if you will. Okay. 
if their periods are regular, um, then you really don't need to do anything other than just maybe uh, what I do is I talk to them about adding just a little bit of estrogen, but really low dose because the menopausal symptoms are coming because their estrogen is diminishing. Um, they're not functioning. Think about an eight cylinder car and one cylinder blows out. It'll still drive fast. It'll still drive smooth, <laughs> but it's not got the power that it had before. I, I think of it sort of like that, that they just need to be topped off a little bit. And in the past month, I've had three women with this exact scenario. They're still menstruating. They've had their tubes tied. They're not concerned about getting pregnant. And we give them just a tiny little bit of estrogen, but tell them, don't take this when you're menstruating. So just almost like birth control pills. Mm -hmm. If they are in that situation and have not had their tubes tied, maybe they're not even in a relationship with anybody, a good option is to put them on birth control pills because it regulates them, gives them a little bit more estrogen, and it will take care of the hot flags. And then you can get them through to menopause. If their periods are irregular, if they've had any kind of abnormal bleeding, then you have to evaluate that first for the tissue, the first exam. Then you do ultrasound. Ultrasound has been such a valuable tool for us, especially this vaginal ultrasound. You get these small probes. You can put them in the vagina, get right up on the uterus. Even if they're very large women, very overweight, where the abdominal scan is too clouded by the fat in the abdominal wall, you can get right up on the uterus through the vagina. It's very comfortable. The patients don't complain about any pain with it. Um, and you can evaluate that lining and see, is it abnormal? We also fortunate that if it needs to be sampled, we have these nice little biopsy instruments called pipels. There's different brands, but that was the first one. It's about the diameter of a, a spaghetti noodle. Mm -hmm. And you can very gently slip it up into the cervix and sample. When my father was um, an OBGYN and certainly when you came along, you could a little bit older than me, but um, any abnormal bleeder had to have a DNC. That mm -hmm. was the only way to, you, you would dilate and cure it or scrape out the lining. Sure. That was the only way there was to evaluate the lining. Um, I remember my dad, he did several a week. Mother would have us all for breakfast before dad went to the office and we went to school. And he'd say, Bob, what are you doing today? Well, I'm <laughs> going to do a couple of DNCs and go to yeah. the office. Or, um, exactly. But nowadays with... Uh, most of the DNCs we do, we already know there is something going on. We know they have a polyp or two. We know that their lining is too thick. Maybe they couldn't tolerate even that little straw. Mm -hmm. And so we may have to put them to sleep so they can um, not be in too much pain doing it. But the, most of the time, the women just have a sensation of maybe a few menstrual cramps. With yeah. So um, that's what I do. I try to top them off. Now, if they're clearly menopausal, or if I'm not sure yet, there's a blood test you can do called FSH that tells us are they or are they not menopausal. If they're menopausal and bleeding, we have to evaluate it. If they're not bleeding, but they're menopausal, then we just talk to them about hormone therapy. That's great. That's And that's the way I tried, uh, you know, way back when. I think it's a great way to approach it and save them so much in the way of symptoms. And as you and I both know, that gets back to uh, many of the ladies would feel, they would come to me, and I'm sure come to you, I'm going crazy. That would be a yeah. standard line, what's happening to me? And as you and I have also found, and, 
and gentlemen who are listening, uh, the men just don't understand a lot about that dynamics a lot of times. And so that's why the gynecologist is so, so important to do that. And uh, I think that's great. Now, Rob, for today's episode, we're about to wrap up, but I'm going to get you back because I want to talk about some other things with the general GYN. We'll get another episode soon when your time allows. But as you look at this, let's shift gears. What advice would you give to a young person, college age, looking to go into the field of medicine in general, but more importantly, your specialty, OBGYN? All right. Um, First of all, I would recommend trying to get some exposure. Uh, Most doctors are more than willing to let you shadow them. Um, if you, to see if you're really serious about wanting to do it if you, and, and to shadow more than one profession. Um, when I, like I told you earlier, when I went to school, my dad had been OBGYN. I grew up around it, but I wasn't really sure that's what I wanted to do. So I was grateful to have the other exposures to things. Uh, sometimes people go in thinking they're going to do X, Y, Z, but they end up doing ABC. Mm-hmm. Um, the, uh, the second thing I would recommend is if you're going to go into, um, you think you're going to college to try to get into medical school, don't major in pre-med. There actually should not be a pre-med major because if you don't get in, what are you going to do with it? Yeah. Um, major in something that you like. Shelly, I had a, a, a lady in my class at Duke who was a drama major. <laughs> she took the bare minimum requirements to get into medical school and she was as fine a physician as any of the rest of us and she was and she added flavor to our class we Mm. weren't all a bunch of egghead nerds (laughs) the the last thing i would recommend very seriously is don't take all science in college take some business classes doctors are terrible (laughs) at running their practices you're very dependent on a business manager you got to know some business, and, and I would recommend, you know, take accounting 101 and 102. Take some business management courses as part of your electives because once you get into medical school, there's no time for that. You're going to get every day, all day, medicine, medicine, medicine. That that, is that's awesome. the three things I would recommend. <laughs> that's wonderful advice. I agree 200%. And I, too, I had the oldest member of my medical school class was well out of our age range, a religion major, one of the finest men I ever knew, added so much, like you say, to your class, became a successful family physician for 40-something years, has since passed away a few years back. But you're absolutely right. What was his pre-med again and everything? That's perfect. Rob, thank you so much for being with me today. It's my and pleasure. I, I'm just delighted, and I'm going to get you back because I've got other things we want to talk about, folks, with general OBGYN. And Robin's just been a delight to know all these years and a wonderful practice, good friend. And if you have any questions, folks, I say this every time, email me, shellgriff at gmail.com, S-A-T-L-G-R-I-F at gmail.com. And I'd be happy to get questions back to Dr. Bledsoe about this. We'll get back to you all in another episode. But uh, thank you all so much for listening. And as I say every time, I hope you have a safe and healthy day, and I'll see you a little further up the road.